papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ding-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis on key media issues of the week, and we welcome you to join in the conversation also. I'm Rex Smith, here with Alan Shartok, Judy Patrick, and Barbara Lombardo. Barbara, the uh, longtime former editor of the Saratogian, executive editor of the Saratogian and the Troy Record. Uh, Judy, former editor of the Daily Gazette, now vice president of the New York Press Association. Alan, of course, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, a columnist, commentator. And I was, for a number of years, the editor of the Times Union. So that's my qualification. I did some other things, too, along there. But we're glad to have you with us. And if you hear something that is interesting to you, send us email, media at wamc.org. We begin today with the big news coverage, of course, of the trial of Derek Chauvin out of Minneapolis, which is a remarkable event in itself, and the homicide of George Floyd. Alan, have you been watching that? Give me any thoughts that you might have to begin about how this trial might be, um, what it might say in terms of the way we cover criminal justice in this country. Rex, I have been watching, and I've been watching it assiduously and without stopping because it's just so horrible what we are, what we're seeing. There's been a debate in this country about cameras in the courtroom for a long time, and this proves to me that there ought to be cameras in the courtroom. Not only that, the people who wrote the United States Constitution were quite clear about public trials. And, you know, people can argue and judges can argue and lawyers can argue against doing it. But there is nothing that will let the people of the United States see some of the injustices that go on, including by police. So from what I'm seeing, this is a terrific and very disappointing thing. I mean, you watch it and you're just horrified at how this came about. Nevertheless, it's something that's terrific. And by the way, I'm very interested in the fact that television, in this case, does it so much better than newspapers. <laughs> it's always good to hear your well, observations, you, Alan. Was that, was that provocative? We all know that visuals carry a lot more weight than the written word. And if it wasn't for visuals of the videotape, this wouldn't even be happening, probably. So we have to agree that television is doing a great job, that this should be a great example for right now of why it's okay to film live coverage of trials and people can see uh, exactly what's happening and how it happens. But, Alan, as far as what newspapers are doing, I have to say that I have not been watching it cover to cover. I am relying on the work of journalists to synthesize the key elements, both in print and for broadcast, and tell me what trusted news sources considered to be the most important elements, the highlights of that day of the trial. But we need we need somebody to boil it down for us. That helps, you know, for those of us who don't have time to watch the whole thing hour to hour all day long, I think. Judy, I'm interested in your point of view 
in the aftermath of the O.J. Simpson trial, there was a lot of talk about people playing to the cameras when there are cameras in the courtroom. Have we escaped that at this point? Are we beyond that conversation, or do you think we're in the midst of that right now again? You know, I've heard that argument, and I thought about it, and now I've come to the conclusion that in some respects, I think it is important that they do play to the cameras because this trial especially is one where you want the public to understand what is going on. The first few days of this trial had incredibly compelling testimony. And then I can guarantee you it's going to grind down to some boring stuff at some point. You're going to get people talking about medical testimony, and it's not going to be quite as enticing coverage. And, and I think that's when newspaper coverage or the written word is going to do a better job. You're not going to have the kind of compelling testimony that you've had the first few days. You can't have that every day. And in this respect, I don't have a problem with them playing to the cameras. And I'm not exactly sure they are, because if you're a lawyer on either side, you want the jury on your side. You don't really care that much about public opinion, although I think the prosecutors do to a large extent. Again, I'm not that worried about them playing to the cameras. And history has shown that aside from the O.J. Simpson case, I think that has been less of a problem. I should mention that cameras are not allowed in New York courts, except if the judge specifically agrees, and it's typically for sentencing. So we're not seeing enjoying that kind of coverage or benefiting from that kind of coverage in New York State. True, notwithstanding the fact that there were 20 years ago three separate commissions in New York State that explored cameras in the courtroom and with participation of media, the legal profession, and so on, everybody agreed that cameras would be a useful addition to our courtrooms, but still TV cameras are kept out. I say TV, but now since newspapers and even radio stations sometimes use cameras as well, except for, as you say, sensing sometimes arraignments, they're kept out of trials, generally speaking. And New York State is still back in the early 20th century in that sense. Allen wouldn't be able to enjoy this kind of access to the TV coverage of the trial if this were being held in New York State, right? Well, I take some great exception to your style and punctuation. And Style. <laughs> Nevertheless, as I said, I think the framers knew what they were doing. I think a lot of people will be having a sense of what's going on as a result of this particular trial. And the fact that some states do it and some states don't do it tells us a lot about New Yorkers and their legislature and what a bunch of jerks they can be. You don't even see it in federal courts. No federal courts and no U.S. Supreme Court. One of the good things to come out of the pandemic is at least we got to hear the oral arguments of the Supreme Court. That's a whole nother level of courts that needs to open up their doors to cameras. Absolutely. I remember writing many an editorial on that subject while I was at the Saratogian. To no avail, they didn't listen. But, you know, the Chauvin case is the first one that's being broadcast live and in full from a Minnesota courtroom. So if there were, not that I want something like this to be happening in New York, but if there were something like this in New York, it's possible that that could become you know, a special case where they would open things up. And this case is a good example to show how filming in the courtroom does not prevent the court from doing the right thing, from getting on with its work. You know, as a matter of fact, I think that it's generally true that transparency enhances citizen scrutiny. The kind of transparency that cameras can bring into a courtroom ought to improve the administration of justice. You know, it's not that TV cameras will by themselves 
fix the systemic bias that we have in the justice system. They won't make lawyers behave scrupulously, but they can give citizens more insight into this often unseen part of our American system. And that's valuable. I think this is a good step. But, you know, what we're seeing right off the bat is the emotional impact. And I think Alan's actual initial insult does have some accuracy. <laughs> There's nothing to substitute. There's no way that you can convey the emotional impact that that video and the people reacting to it. There's no way that any medium other than visual can convey that. And just think for a moment about what just happened with the Asian woman, elderly Asian woman, being knocked to the ground and beaten up and kicked by an individual who then walks off nonchalantly. That ought to be part of a, I mean, look, we're going through a crisis in this country with discrimination against people of Asian descent. And I think we really do need to understand that if that showed up in a courtroom somewhere, people would be irate. I mean, you can see it on television now, but nevertheless, with a court and people trying to explain away what happened and their defense lawyers trying to defend them, pretty strong stuff. And it's disgraceful, as you say. The United States Supreme Court is particularly disgraceful in that they are not allowing us to hear what they had to say. This is not good for government. You know, the presence of cameras everywhere in society these days, the cameras that are scouting for crime here and there, the cameras that are ubiquitous because everybody is carrying a smartphone, these present great opportunities for journalists. They give us this opportunity to show what's really going on in a community in a way that we never could before, but they also call upon us to make judgments that are sometimes difficult to make because you are torn between the emotional impact of a video sometimes and the responsible element of protecting the rights of people who show up in these photographs or these videos. It is just another tool for journalists in a way, but it does present more challenges, right? Right. You have to verify that the video is authentic. I think there are new tools to help journalists do that, but it's not as easy as just taking someone's video at face value because videos can be doctored. I shudder to think the fact that it's not that hate crimes are just starting to happen now. It's just that we have the tools now to record it. And what happens if something horrible happens and it's not videotaped now? I almost think it doesn't have a chance at all at getting prosecuted. We become over-reliant. If there's no video, maybe there's no crime, which is a sad state of affairs. Absolutely. So if you have some thoughts about this, listeners, despite the fact that you can't see the video here on WAMC, you can hear what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> we welcome your views. Media at WAMC.org. Alan Shartok, Judy Patrick, Barbara Lombardo, and I'm Rex Smith. You know, one of our favorite targets here on the Media Project is Fox News. As in the immortal phraseology of Alan Shartok, them we don't like, right? Am I quoting you accurately? Them I don't like. <laughs> Absolutely. Nor does Dominion Systems, the giant voting machine software creator, is suing Fox News for $2.7 billion, claiming, here's the key phrase, reckless disregard for the truth under the Supreme Court controlling decisions. It is reckless disregard for the truth that is required to establish liability for libel here. But the question that I think is is present is, wasn't there actually a legitimate defense for Fox News? 
in saying, hear me out here, in saying, well, this is a position taken by the president of the United States, Donald Trump and his counsel, Rudy Giuliani and, and so on. And was Fox News not therefore justified in giving it a lot of attention? And that seems to be what their defense is going to be. What do you think of that defense? Well, a lot of attention seems to me to be justified. I mean, they can make that argument. The question is, how did they do it? Did they announce it as fact that these machines were corruptive? Or did they quote the president of the United States and others? It seems to me that that's the crux of this. If they're quoting other people, I think they've got no problem. I think their problem is that they went over the line. That's why them I don't like. Fox was presenting the lies as fact. They weren't saying, exactly. here's the president's opinion. Things were being presented as fact. They were presented by their hosts as fact, and they were presented by Sidney Powell as fact, even though we were told later we shouldn't believe it. And Fox was warned multiple times, apparently, although I, I have to admit I haven't read those letters, but no, supposedly they, have. they were, they were. Uh, warned multiple times that, hey, this is bad. You're harming us. We're going to sue you. And they did not stop. So I, I'm hoping that they get hit with both barrels. And I kind of hope that there's a jury trial rather than a settlement. Now, Barbara, would you feel the same way if it were, you know, somebody on the more liberal side, the more left side, who had done the same thing, presenting something as fact? Or would you rely on the Supreme Court to protect, as they have in New York Times versus Sullivan? I absolutely, uh, I absolutely would hold whatever the political point of view. It wouldn't matter if it was conservative or liberal. It matters whether it's the truth. There's right and wrong. This is a wrong thing to do. It would be wrong if it was a liberal position as well. They were essentially advocates for this cause. Really, until the very end, they made no effort to offer a counter view of reality. And they, they often didn't even say, in our opinion, this. But even if they did, couching something in, this is my opinion, to present something that's factually incorrect with disregard for the truth, that doesn't protect you from slander and libel. That's absolutely right. Even if you are quoting a public official, even if you are covering something, if you knowingly allow something that is not true to be aired, even if it is someone else's quotation, you are liable for it as well. I think it's significant that when the first libel suit was filed against Fox by Semantech, immediately the Lou Dobbs program was canceled. That may have been an effort at mitigation by Fox and an effort to get a court to say, well, they've already taken a hit for this. But this is significant. The total of the lawsuits now confronting Fox News is $4.3 billion dollars. The whole Fox Corporation had earnings last year of $3 billion. So this is trying to take a cleaver to Fox and see if that will change its behavior, which so far it seems not to have done. I mean, has anybody noticed any change in Fox since this stuff has been filed? No. No, and, and remember what, when you're asking for money in a lawsuit, you're sort of picking a number, a bigger number than you think you might Absolutely. actually get. Right. And I think that's why I would like to see a jury trial to see the whole thing play out, I know there's always a danger of what the courts are going to say, but when there's a settlement, it seems to go away more quietly. They pay their fines, unless it's going to be a big enough settlement where it becomes their undoing. Now, this is going to show up in the Supreme Court of the United States. Would everybody agree on this? Sooner or later, assuming that Fox is found guilty of doing this, we will go to the Trump Supreme Court. I call it the Trump <laughs> Supreme Court because he put so many people there. But think about this for a second. And we know that that court said no to the president. You can't steal the election before you even bring that up. Nevertheless, this becomes a lot more marginal 
The president of the United States then, Trump, announced that the press was the enemy of the people. So it'll be fascinating to see what that court has to say and which side they come down on. I think you're right, because there is the difficulty of, if you're a conservative judge, you might want to stand on the side of the aggrieved plaintiffs most of the time. You might be someone who says, well, there's entirely too much freedom by the press to malign people. But if the freedom of the press is exercised by a right-wing outlet, Fox News, where does someone of right-wing bias on the bench come down. I still tend to have this old-fashioned view that judges will look at the laws as clearly as they can in making these decisions, and I, I really wouldn't want to speculate on how this might turn out if it does get right. to the Supreme Court. And I, and I presume you're talking about Clarence Thomas and Alito uh, <laughs> right now, because, you know. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I get your point. Yeah. This comes down the heels of this, you know, right-wing rant from the U.S. Circuit Court Judge Silberman a week or two ago, where he called for the landmark New York Times versus Sullivan case to be overturned. He said it's bad law. He clearly thinks that journalism is a threat to democracy, and he's not alone. I know he's older, he's on his way out, and then it was a bit of a rant, but as Alan says, Donald Trump was able to appoint a lot of judges, and a lot of these judges think the media has too much power, and they'd like to see you know, New York Times versus Sullivan, which protects everyone, not just the press, when it comes to libel. They'd like to see that diluted. Well, there's no indication that these lawsuits are having any impact on the right-wing media. Fox News is doubling down. They have now given a, a program co-host position to Kaylee McEnany, the former White House press secretary. Notwithstanding the fact that Fox has now fallen behind CNN, not only in the 25 to 54 age demographic, which they really covet, but in overall viewers, because Fox News has always skewed older. Their average viewer is actually 70. Notwithstanding that, Fox News has now fallen behind, and they're doubling down by getting even more aggressive in their commentary, and the right-wing commentary, because of the fears that they will lose more ground to these right. Uh, right-wing startups, Newsmax, and so on. That's right. You know, but you raise a fascinating subject, and that is the president of the United States is now a Democrat. You know, a moderate Democrat. And one wonders that Fox, which seemed to be ahead, was doing well because they were mirroring the in-power then-President Trump. I wonder, as a political scientist, whether it was somebody wants to write a doctoral dissertation on whether or not we reward our favorite news media and give them more points if they are mirrors of the person in power. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't it likely be the other way that the media that would be most popular would be that which is most aggressive in taking on the power? You know, was MSNBC popular? Did Rachel Maddow's stock rise because it was a place where the opponents of Donald Trump could find some comfort? And is Fox News now going to have its moment in the sun because it's going to be the place where the anti-Biden forces will be able to coalesce? Interesting point, because I was just reading the New York Times and the excellent reporter who was on this radio station a lot, Jesse McKinley, at least the story that he wrote, I don't know who had it first, was that Andrew Cuomo was paid $4 million for the book that he put out, $4 million. Now, that's outrageous, but it isn't the $4 million that gets me. It's the fact that the press has really found that information out, which is extraordinary, I think. 
Some terrific reporting coming out of Albany these days. Absolutely true. And pointing out, here's where a well-constructed story makes a difference. That fine story co-reported by Jesse McKinley and his colleagues also noted that the governor's previous book sold fewer than 4,000 copies. How do you get a $4 million advance when your previous book sold fewer than 4,000 copies? And why? I mean, yeah. I wrote a much better book called Me and Mario, Conversations <laughs> in Candor. <laughs> Which was really you a didn't get four million for that? It, no, nor did nor did it sell all that many copies. But I tell you right now, it was so much better, and I didn't get any four million dollars, and that's got me a little upset. I've got my copy right here on the shelf in my study, Alan. So I just want guy. you to know, I'm, Is a, it I'm a fan. You know, I've got dollar help. Every dollar help. <laughs> I, I think that I read that there were multiple freedom of information law requests for some of this information from various outlets. And as soon as it came out, Jesse McKinley and his colleagues were able to do the right thing and turn around a story very quickly. But freedom of information law, I believe, was a, a factor in this, too. There does become a question in all of this. As long as we're talking about Andrew Cuomo, I think that we need to take stock of the multiple layers in which he's now being investigated and the revelations one day after the next in the media. It does seem to me that the governor's political peril would not be as great if it weren't for the fact that the good reporters who are covering this uh, from their capital beat are on top of it. If this were left purely to the government investigators, this would not be happening. This is an example of the press driving what's going on in politics rather than the other way around. Isn't that a fair assessment? Yeah, but why did it take so long? That's my question. In other words, hmm. once it opened up, you know, the reporters who are doing this work deserve kudos, although I'm not sure for everything that they've done or said. Nevertheless, it took a long time. It's almost as if somebody said, okay, the wraps are off, let's go. And I don't get that. I don't know what you mean by that. It does seem to me that reporters have been on top of the issue of the reporting about the nursing homes, uh, the sort of overzealous self-aggrandizement about dealing with COVID. I think that the reporters covering the Capitol, including my alma mater, the Times Union, have done a great job of reporting that. And if it didn't get a lot of attention from the politicians who are now convening impeachment panels and so on, if it didn't get a lot of attention from the prosecutors, that's not the fault of the media. They were on top of it. Well, no. See, I don't agree with you. I think it was the fault of the media, but that's okay. I think it took a while. Now they're doing it. But you're right about the nursing home situation. But in terms of, you know, he kissed her on the lips, he hugged her, that kind of stuff, that all came much later. The media have been reporting it as it comes up, as those things arise. And you can't predict who's going to pop up and say mm. something happened to them. I think a lot of it is much ado about a lot. And I worry that some of them is much ado about what really shouldn't be even a concern if you're giving somebody a hug at a public event in public. Some of that worries me that there's a lot of media jumping on that bandwagon. But overall, I think the media has done a good job since the beginning. Times Union is a good example. From the nursing home crisis to the misogyny to the bridge, it happens the Mario Cuomo Bridge. So I think media has been following it, Alan. You know, throughout Cuomo's tenure, there have been, I think the newspapers have tried to approach this, his management style, how it's a hammer approach to doing things. And you've seen these stories pop up, you know, his ethical challenges. 
you've seen these come up, but they're not enough. They don't translate to the broadcast medium, so they don't get the attention that this latest string of stories is getting. I, I think people have been trying to chip away at it for a few years, but for many years, Cuomo hasn't been talked about for some of his tactics. But you're seeing it now because it does translate far better into broadcast. You guys are sort of pathetic well, because you're always uh, <laughs> you know, being so defensive. It works in print but, also. It's the cumulative effect of Cuomo's management style, the ethics, and what he's done and what he hasn't done. It, it's all, rather than the drip, drip, drip of the routine stories as they have been coming up, now we're reading, it seems like there's a press ganging up on him perhaps because now uh, it's it a does cumulative effect of all these different elements in print and in broadcast. Oh, you said it seems like the press ganging up on him. But I take your point, actually, Barbara, that some of the allegations that have been raised need to be explored thoroughly. And that's why it's good to have a government investigation rather than have this be purely a matter that's handled in the media. And we'll be there to cover all of that, of course. Yeah, I think I sometimes detect in some stories or broadcasts almost a subtle glee in, hey, the big bully is being taken down. And I think journalists just need to be very careful about the words they choose and how they say it and how it's presented. And with that, we are out of time. We'll have to let that be it. That was Barbara Lombardo. Judy Patrick, also thank you. And Alan Shartok, of course. And we are grateful to our producer, David Gustina. And we are grateful to you for joining us this week. I'm Rex Smith thanking you and saying we'll see you next week. And we are grateful to you, our leader, Rex Smith, for moderating the show. <laughs> They're here. She up and cut her husband's only throat. She chopped the Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, professor emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Albany Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Barbara Lombardo is a journalism professor at the University at Albany and former executive editor of the Saratogian and the Troy Record. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at WAMC org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. They used to work like hell just for romance, but finally the movies notwithstanding, they all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspaper men are such interesting people. When they know they've got a people's fight to wage Ting-a-ling-a-ling newspaper guild Got a free new world to build Meet the people, that's a thrill All together fits the bill Oh, newspaper men are such interesting people It's wonderful to represent the guild Now publishers are such interesting people Their policy's an acrobatic thing they claim to represent the common people. It's funny, Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.